Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by This Is Everything with Ali Levine, a podcast hosted by Hollywood mom, celebrity stylist, influencer, and Bravo reality star, Ali Levine. On her podcast, you'll get a mix of, well, everything from motherhood to fashion, lifestyle, spiritual being, all totally real and raw. You have to listen. Allie interviews celebrities, experts, entrepreneurs, and so much more. Tune in weekly to be uplifted, empowered, inspired, and truly entertained. 
Hi, everybody. Every so often, I end up with so many amazing episodes, I just have to release them all at once. So this week is going to be a book blast week, and it starts off with today, Memoir Monday, and then goes to Nonfiction Tuesday, Literary Fiction Wednesday, New Novels Thursday, and Family-Themed Memoirs for Friday. So I hope you all enjoy, and welcome to day one of the February book blast, February 1st, Memoir Monday. Melissa Gould is the author of Widowish, a memoir. When her beloved husband died unexpectedly of multiple sclerosis and West Nile virus, writer Melissa Gould started chronicling her grief journey through her personal essays and speaking engagements. Telling her story has been a crucial part of her healing, and she has found meaningful connection in sharing. Her essays on love, grief, and healing can be found in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, AARP, BuzzFeed, Kveller, the Huffington Post, and more. Melissa has shared her widow experience at various workshops and seminars, including Soaring Spirits International, the Ed Asner Family Center, and more. She is an award-writing screenwriter who wrote on such acclaimed TV series as Bill Nye the Science Guy, Party of Five, Beverly Hills 90210, and Lizzie McGuire. She has also written several TV movies for networks, such as NBC and The Disney Child. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am so excited to be talking to you. I am so excited to be talking to you. (laughs) So as I think you know, because I kept posting about it on social media and we were emailing and all the rest, I read your book at like the most emotional moment probably in my adult life when I was literally like flying down to Duke to say goodbye to my mother-in-law. And I read it that whole like two days down there, which will be forever etched in my mind as just like traumatic and awful, except I got to escape into your book. And so I feel like this (laughs) special bond with you, which like you're not even a part of, it's like me and your book, you know, (laughs) or my book and your book and me, I should say. So thank you for providing me the solace that I needed during that time. I'm really grateful. Oh, well, I'm so flattered that my story resonated for you or that it helped you at all just means so much to me. And I am so sorry for your loss, losses. I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, it's, <laughs> and thank you for writing so beautifully about all of it. So why don't you tell listeners what your memoir is about? It's called Widowish. Give us more context and tell us how this became a book. Okay, well, I'll tell you, I really believe that Widowish is a love story. It's a modern love story that's sort of wrapped up in a grief story and a little bit more of a love story. And it's also about expectations, I think. Well, let me just start by saying my husband, Joel, died unexpectedly and suddenly of West Nile virus. And it was something none of us saw coming. And Joel was my person. He was my everything. We had been together, married for 16 years, probably together for 20. We had a 13-year-old daughter. She was 13 at the time, Sophie. And when he died, obviously my world was completely upended. And I feel like, you know, Widowish is really, in some ways, it's about the title because I was young. I was in my 40s. I didn't look like a widow. I didn't act like a widow. You know, plot twist, I found love again. That also completely unexpected and suddenly. But I felt like a widow. And I still feel like a widow. And it's been several years now. And I think so much of my story is about how all of these feelings of feeling so bereft and so grief-stricken and so sad and so in love with my husband and yet the tingling sensations of a new love and the excitement that that brought into my life, all of these feelings were 
coexisting. And, you know, people didn't know that about me. I became the town widow. I mean, you know, I live in Los Angeles and, but, you know, in our community, everybody kind of knows each other. Our kids all go to the same school. They all go to the same doctors. They all have the same, you know, guitar teacher or, you know, we all kind of knew each other. And I felt very self-conscious. People would see me picking up Sophie from school or going to yoga or going to Trader Joe's. And because life moved forward, whether I wanted it to or not, and having a young daughter, you know, she became my focus. And so Widowish is really about all of these things, these coexisting feelings, the sudden loss, only parenting. You know, our, our small little family trio became this dynamic duo of Sophie and I. And I think Widowish really just explores all of those things. Can you share the story of how Joel got West Nile and like, or how you believe he got it? And then just like a, an abridged version, if, it, if it's not too painful to, to sort of summarize like that period of time, yeah. what exactly happened? It was so crazy. You know, so Joel had multiple sclerosis. He had MS. He was diagnosed when Sophie was around eight years old. And prior to that, Joel really was a mix of athleticism and music. He worked in the music business and music was so important to us as a family. I mean, we went to concerts all the time. He would go out several nights a week to see bands and live music. And he also was on a softball team. He was on a basketball team. He would go to the gym every day. He was an extremely athletic person. Loved the Dodgers, I have to say. And he came home from a basketball game one night like 10 minutes after he had left. And he just said, something is really wrong. I see the ball going down the court and I tell my body go, but I can't. And it was devastating. And after a series of tests, he got the MS diagnosis and we thought, okay, we're going to, we'll live with, well, we're going to manage this. We knew about MS. Some family members ironically had it. It was something we were, we knew about. And Joel got on the right medication and it really worked for a number of years. He was feeling, he was living his life with MS. Certain things started to affect him years into the diagnosis because what we realized was a lot of these medications have a lifespan and they stop working. And it was around the time of Sophie's bat mitzvah. And 2013 was really a seminal year for our, for us and our family. It was Sophie was turning 13 and having her bat mitzvah. Joel was turning 50. And later that year, he died unexpectedly. So we had these milestones. And because it's so funny, like how life works, because because of the bat mitzvah, because of his 50th birthday, we saw everybody in our lives who was important to us and who mattered that year. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was like, you know, there were people who were coming in and out of our lives throughout the year that wouldn't necessarily have been there if not for the bat mitzvah, if not for his 50th birthday. But anyway, that year of all of these things, Joel really was suffering with the MS. We went from living with it and having a full life with a few modifications. He eventually had to stop playing basketball, but then he found yoga and yoga was everything. And he started riding his bike more. And, you know, again, he was a very athletic guy who liked to move. But the new meds that he had started were just not kicking in. And he really was starting to suffer. And protocol with MS is 
you would take steroids or the doctor would prescribe steroids that would sort of bridge the gap between the old medication and the new medication just to keep Joel moving forward every day. But the steroids, which he was getting, a nurse was coming to our house every day for a week, administering these steroids through an IV. And we were told, similar to, in a way, what we're dealing with now with COVID, is that because of his suppressed immune system, that the steroids might make him susceptible to a cold or something that he wouldn't be able to fight off so easily. So he, we were on lockdown for a week. So if he was still going to school, we weren't having friends over, we weren't going out to dinner. Joel was taking these steroids and he would hang out in our backyard, which was his happy place. He loved to garden. He loved to kind of just cut some flowers, pick up from the lemons from our lemon tree. He, he was like an outdoor guy. We never thought that that would be dangerous. And what I mean by that is three weeks or I'm sorry, about two months after the steroid treatment, the MS was not getting any better. Actually, I'm, I'm a little off on the timeline, Zippy, but you got the idea. But yes. he was having these steroid treatments. And then at some point, he got very sick with symptoms that did not seem like MS. He had an extremely high fever, but he would take Tylenol and the fever would go down. He became very fatigued and we thought he had the flu. And we were sort of on high alert with his MS doctors because new medication can go either way. And so we weren't sure is this a reaction to the new meds? Is this the flu? And after a few days, we were like, this is crazy. Joel and I made the decision together to take him to the hospital, to go to the hospital. He walked himself in. This wasn't and we, you know, we, yes, we were dealing with MS, but we were not hospital people. I didn't know protocol. He eventually, and we went to the emergency room. They eventually moved him into a room. And me thinking he had the flu, couldn't wait to get home and wash everything and disinfect everything. I didn't want to catch it. I didn't want Sophie to catch I mean, I never thought that this was dire. And he very quickly in the hospital fell into a coma. I had to move him from one hospital, which to me, it was like the go-to hospital. I mean, people go there for cancer treatments and to have their babies or whatever, but we moved him from that hospital to the hospital where his MS doctors were, another fantastic facility, because at that point, we were like, this could be a deathly reaction to the MS meds, but it never really presented like a reaction to the meds. And there was medical confusion for two and a half, three weeks. Joel was in a coma this whole time. The doctors were telling me, your husband is critically ill. And in my mind, I kept thinking, well, just we'll make him better. That's what you do. We're in a hospital. I could never, none of this occurred to me that he would die. And that's when I really learned about viruses. And a series of tests were done from the very first hospital to the second hospital. Results kept coming back negative, but they kept circling the idea that this was a virus. And one of the very first infectious disease doctors was examining Joel from head to toe when we first admitted him and kept asking me, are you sure he wasn't bit by something? Was he bit by a mosquito? Did he have a mosquito? And I was like, I have no idea. Turns out he was bitten by a mosquito and that's how he contracted West Nile virus. And really that is the cause of his death. There are a few things listed on his death certificate, but West Nile virus is number one. Complications from MS is another one. It, you know, it, it was horrifying and completely unexpected. And, you know, again, the doctors every day were coming to me with something new. You know, we think he has brain damage. 
he seems to be paralyzed from the waist down. And even though they were telling me these things, again, I kept thinking, okay, well, once we know what it is, you'll give him the meds and he'll be better. But viruses don't work that way. And West Nile virus did its job, meaning all of the things that a virus can do to a person, cause brain damage, cause paralysis, that's what happened to Joel, because these viruses just have to run their course. And because of the MS, he was susceptible to a lethal mosquito bite. I am so sorry. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that a mosquito in today's day and age you know, like, can I actually know. be the cause of this. And I, I am just so sorry. It's awful. Thank you. I mean, it, it's shocking. Even when I tell the story, Zibby, it's still, right. and that's what I mean. And I'm really like the, a lot of that is in the book. Like I, my life became so surreal and continues to be in so many ways. Well, it's like the shock of it. it. You know, when you kept saying like, I just kept thinking, okay, fine. Yeah. He's critically ill. Like make it better. That's good. You know, on to the next, let's keep going. It's right. the shock. It's the, sh- it's the shock. Like that doctors don't have the answers to all, all these things. You can be in the best hospital and it shouldn't be this way, but it is. And, and then you can't go back. You can't be like, oh, we should have done this. Let's do this next time. You can't. Like, that's it. It's the last straw. Yeah. And I know you, I'm sure this is similar to what you guys were going through also. And it is, it is shocking because of what you just said also. It's like, you think these doctors, you know, they're miracle workers. Like, okay do something. That's what you're here for. Like, you know, this is your language, not mine. Like you must know what's going on, but yeah. So first of all, when did you decide to make your experience into a book? How did that end up happening? Well, that's kind of crazy also because, you know, I, I've been a writer my whole life. I was a screenwriter and I made my living, you know, as a TV writer. And I was very content working in television. And when Joel died, you know, of course, as I've said, me and my life was turned upside down and I really was living a life of grief, but acting as if everything was okay because I needed, I wanted to keep Sophie on track, but I was really suffering in my grief. And a very close friend of mine invited me to join her writing group. And I thought, you know, it was really just a baby step of me getting back to a part of myself that I had sort of let go, which was writing. And I joined this group and, you know, I was the only professional writer in there and all my worst qualities came out. (laughs) And I just thought, I just was, I just was going with it. It's almost like somebody pointed me in the direction and said, go. And I went and the direction this time was join a writing group. So I joined this writing group and I, you know, after five minutes, I loved it. I just thought, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is going to save me. And I started writing a novel and I loved it. And I loved the characters and the world I was creating. And it was such an escape for me. Like, you know, for those few hours, once a week, I'd go to my writing group. I was so happy. And my friend who had invited me into the group at one point, we were leaving one night. I had just, I think I said, I had just signed up for the next like six week session And I had started seeing this guy who became my boyfriend (laughs) and I was telling her about him and she looked at me. She's like, you know, I love the novel. I love it. I love what you're writing, but Joel just died. You're raising Sophie on your own. You're now seeing Marcos and you're not writing about any of it. She's like, I really think you should. And I was stunned. I was actually very angry 
Like, how dare she? How dare anybody tell me what to write? It felt so personal. And because I was a screenwriter and had, had done that my whole life, the thought of writing about myself or writing anything that personal, I could not wrap my head around. I was like, why in the world would I write something so personal? Like, I was so angry at my friend. I was so incensed, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. I kept thinking, what would I write about? What would I say? But I had so much to say. I had so much to say about being widowed in my 40s, about becoming an only parent, about falling in love again while I was deeply grieving my husband. And so the whole week leading up to the next class, I just kept having these thoughts. And so when I got to class that the following week, I decided like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I have not stopped writing about myself (laughs) since. And I guess how Widowish came about was first of all, that was the most healing thing I could have done for myself. I mean, the I don't know that I would have come to that. I mean, maybe eventually I would have realized, oh, maybe I should write about this. But it was like a a close friend who knew me so well. Putting that suggestion in my mind changed my life, really, because I started writing these essays. And then I started publishing the essays. And I couldn't believe that people were interested in my story. But I kept hearing from people. And... A lot of them were widows and a lot of them weren't. They just, what I was writing really resonated for them. And then I got my essays in the, you know, I got one in the LA Times and the Washington Post and then the New York Times. And I had a column on the Huffington Post and I just kind of kept going. I didn't know from books. I mean, it's funny because when I, I got my first TV writing job, I was so thrilled to be at the table. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. And I really felt the same and I feel the same way now because I know as a young kid, I always wanted to be an author, but I ended up being a screenwriter. But to have a book, I mean, that's what's also so surreal is that I now have this book out. I am now a bona fide author, but it's because my husband died. I mean, it's, but you know, that, that's the other things to be like, that is the greatest gift in all of this that you and I are sitting here now, we're having a conversation about Joel and that keeps him alive. And that is everything. Like that's, I didn't see that coming. And I think that's the point about with my essays and then just to keep going and writing Widowish and, you know, and finding an agent and then having a publisher. And it all seemed, you know, a a friend and I, another writer, we call it like the divine download because writing this book, yes, it was difficult, of course. I was writing about some difficult things, but the process was very easy for me because it was right there. It was just under the surface. And I feel like it all just needed to come out and it did. And that's widowish. Oh, that's such an amazing story. It's amazing. Also just the power of connection and how, you know, I was thinking as you were talking earlier and you were like, Oh, well, I'm in this neighborhood in LA. And I was thinking to myself, Oh, I wonder where she is. Maybe we can like meet up sometime in LA. If <laughs> yeah. And then I was just thinking like, this is so crazy. If I met you on the street, like we wouldn't be able to have this like in-depth conversation immediately. (laughs) I mean, I know this is a podcast about your book and everything, but just you put yourself out there so much 
So then, you know, you open yourself up to other people being like, well, let's continue this conversation because like you, you know, like I want to hear more. It's just amazing. And it's just so nice. Thank you so much. I'm alive that way. I think, you know, one of the big misconceptions about loss is that people, you know, will be sad if you bring up the person who has died, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't bring up the fact that her dad died. So I'm not going to say, how are you? Or I I wouldn't want that to, you know, set her off as if like the person is not always thinking about that person who has lost. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I feel like there is a a healthy amount of self-consciousness about being, like I said, the town widow, like even now, and it's been, you know, several years since Joel died. I know that is the first thing people think of when they see me. And I could be out with my boyfriend. If I'm out with Sophie, I feel it even more. I feel them thinking, oh, poor Melissa, poor Sophie. I can't stand it. I wish I could tell you, like, here's what you say to somebody who just lost it. Yet, I don't know. I think grief is so personal and it's there's no right or wrong way to do it. And I know so many people talk about the things you should say, things you shouldn't say. I feel like I should know what you should and shouldn't say. And I really don't. Like... <laughs> That's okay. Thinking of you is typically for me. That's enough to just have somebody say, "I'm thinking of you. I'm so sorry." That's all. I don't. I don't need to get into the whole. How are you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. Wait, can we go to the falling in love with the guitar teacher part of the story? (laughs) (laughs) What do you want to know? I know. I mean, I know you wrote about it and everything, but like, so is that ongoing? Are you guys still together? Yes, we're still together. Amazing. And again, like Zibby, that's also about. When I talk about like these expectations of, you know, there was an expectation people had of me as the young widow. I had my own expectations about what grief should look like. You know, my daughter has all of her grandparents are still alive, which is such a gift, but her dad isn't here. It's crazy. And this is like a roundabout way of saying so when what happened with Marcos, who was Sophie's guitar teacher, is that he really was one of the very few people who did not make me feel self-conscious about having lost my husband. And if I just back up from that, I always thought he was attractive. I mean, the first time I met him, Joel, guitar lessons fell under Joel's jurisdiction because he was the musician and the music guy. So he would take Sophie to her guitar lessons. And I would hear about Marcos and everybody in the neighborhood knew him and everybody whose kids took guitar took it from... So I knew who he was, but I had never met him. and, And there was a time when Joel couldn't take Sophie to guitar. So I ended up taking her. And I remember the first time I saw him, I was like, oh my God, nobody told me the guitar teacher was so hot. <laughs> and I, I even, I mean, I said it to Joel, you know, I was like, honey, oh, come on. <laughs> and I even called the friend who recommended him to us. And she was like, oh, get in line. We all have a crush on Marcos. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was just a matter of fact. It was, you know, nothing. But then I ran into him shortly after Joel died. And like everybody at the time, he offered to help in any way he could. And again, like so many people, can I bring you some food? Do you need me to pick Sophia? What, you know, whatever it is. And I always appreciated it. But with Marcos, I did, you know, Joel had a ton of music equipment. He had guitars and amplifiers and all this stuff. And this happened, Joel had been gone maybe six months. And I started cleaning out the garage. And I was kind of tiptoeing around the idea of getting rid of some things. And the stuff that was in the garage, I was like, how important could it be? I forgot we even had it. And so when I ran into Marcus and he said to me, if you need help with anything, I was like, oh my God, the stuff in the, he can help me. And so 
slowly but surely he he came over he helped me one day he was very matter of fact he didn't you know he talked about Joel very easily i just i i felt very much myself when i was with him even though our interactions were very brief you know he would come he would look through the stuff he would call me and say oh i gave so and so this guitar i you know that i'm going to use this for my lessons uh, you know and then one day i had to go with him there was one guitar that was actually worth something and i had to go with him to consignment shop and i didn't really question i you know i was i was so deep in my grief that i just again pointed me in the direction i would go he was like you need to go with me to the guitar thing and i was like okay and i just was very comfortable it was so different than how i felt in my real life I felt like I was like on vacation when I was with him. Like I just wasn't thinking. I just was with him. And again, he talked easily about Joel. He didn't make me feel like, he didn't look at me the way I felt everybody else was looking at me. I knew he, he wasn't pitying me, poor Melissa, you know. And then just one thing kind of led to another. And I thought, I'm going to continue to not think about this. I'm just going to go with it. I'm feeling attracted to him, which was also shocking. And I also wanted to tell Joel. I mean, it's such a bizarre, it's like, I told Joel everything, you know? And I like, why wouldn't I tell him? <laughs> oh my God, honey, I'm hooking up with the guitar teacher. Like it just, it was, so, it, again, it was like this, all of these feelings coexisting at the same time. And I was trying to manage it. And then when it came to Marcos, I just thought it'll be a fling. It'll be good for me. I'm just going to go with it. And here we are, you know, so many years later still very much together. And, you know, we're, it's, we're an odd pairing. We're not, we don't make sense to everybody. I don't mind. <laughs> Did I tell you in our emails that my husband now used to be my tennis teacher? Did I mention that? I did know that. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with the, like, I had moms coming up to me and being like, oh, Zibby, I get it. <laughs> cute. It's so funny. Anyway, we're super happy. It's been, you know, what, five years or something crazy. So it can happen. You know, it's the people who are, it's the people who cut through all the stuff, right? It's like, they don't need the pretense. I don't know, not to generalize. I mean, I don't know if these guys are even remotely similar, but I don't know. I felt, I found myself relating when you said how he just saw you and you could just be you and you know, that's the greatest thing in any relationship is like taking all the stuff down, right? Taking down all the scaffolding and just getting underneath and seeing what's under there. So, yeah. And I have to tell you, I feel like, you know, a few things is I feel so lucky in love that I, you know, I had Joel who completely got me, you know, we met when I was a teenager, I think, and we didn't get together until years after that. But you know, I knew Joel like my whole adult life and I felt so loved and adored. And I have to say, I feel the same, the same, but different with Marcos. He totally gets me. I'm a hundred percent myself. I mean, I feel those are gifts of love and I, I'm so happy to be the recipient of that. It sounds a little obnoxious, but it is meaningful to me. And, and I also feel like, you know, Marcos continues to accept that Joel is my husband. I'm still married to like, that's how I feel. I am still married to Joel. He's still my person. And now there's Marcos as well. So it's, it is weird. <laughs> no one said that grief makes sense. No one says, no, it doesn't. no one said that life makes any sense. So, you know, I think your attitude though is, you know, not that I'm in any position to judge or no one should judge, but I'm, it seems very, 
empowering and inspiring because you're just like, you know what, whatever, if it doesn't make sense, this is what I'm doing. And this makes me happy. And like, for if there's anything that you are owed, it's some happiness after having your husband just like cruelly snatched away from you. So I mean, anyone who begrudges you happiness in any way, shape or form, just forget it. Right. I mean, I agree. And I'll tell you something else that really helped me. And this is in the book. A lot, all of this is in the book, but a friend of mine said to me early on, everything you do should be easy. And it's such simple advice. I don't even think she realized she was giving me advice. But when she said that, it really was transformative because I thought everything is so hard. And she said something like, she's like, your husband just died and you're surviving. There's nothing harder than that. So everything you do, choose easy. And I kind of did that with Marcos. I wasn't in this headspace of like, oh my God, we live on different sides of the boulevard. He's the guitar teacher. I you know all of those things. I just, I did not have the capacity to analyze it the way I would have if things were not so surreal. And so that advice of like, just make things easy. I decided with him, I'm going to just, whatever happens, happens. I wasn't putting all of my, like, I, I wasn't like, he was not saving me from my grief. He coexisted with my grief. That's the, oh, that's the point I wanted to make too, is like, and I think I, I, I think I, I spell this out pretty clearly in, in the book, but it's not like, because I have a boyfriend and a man in my life, like I'm better. Like, oh, she's, Melissa's fine. She's got a boyfriend and it, no, it's, it's what I just said a minute ago. It's like the grief coexists with the love, which coexists with this new life. And, you know, it's, it's complicated, but yes, I think happy is my baseline and I'm, I'm happy to be back at happy, but still grieving. (laughs) And that's why I say the book is really a love story because again, it's not like Marcos came in and like saved me. I didn't need saving. I'm not better because I have love in my life again, but it is a nice, like, okay, life just moves forward, whether I wanted it to or not. And here we are. Amazing. I love that. (laughs) So having written the book, do you have advice to aspiring authors? I think my advice is to keep writing. I mean, I really believe that everybody has a story to tell. I don't necessarily mean memoir, but I think we've all had life experiences. Mm. We've all had been witness to things and things have happened to us. And if somebody is inspired to write, to just write and to really believe in yourself and believe in what you're saying. And there's so many you know, voices that may be like, oh, that's terrible. That's such a bad idea. Or don't do that. There's a lot of no starting with ourselves. So I just be kind to yourself and to just keep writing whatever comes of, you know, you could be writing a journal. It doesn't mean like you, you know, that's plenty. I just encourage people to tell whatever story they feel compelled to tell. Love it. Well, Melissa, thank you. I hope we can continue offline in some form because I'd love to stay in touch. I feel like I'm like so rooting for you and like so invested in your story <laughs> and all the rest of that sounds creepy or something, but, but thank you so much for coming on Mom's Now Time to Read Books and sharing your grief and your happiness and, and the tangled mess that it, that it really all is all together. I know. <laughs> thank you so much, Zibby. This was really fantastic to talk with you. Me too. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Today's episode has been sponsored by This Is Everything, the podcast by Ali Levine. 
And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time To Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 